This is Suzanne Atkinson with Try to Listen, the podcast for curious triathletes. Each episode features an interview with an athlete, coach, or scientist whose passion lies in triathlon. It's my job to uncover their story. Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining me today on Try to Listen. Today you'll be hearing an interview between myself and Joe Friel. Uh, Joe Friel is a remarkable coach. He is truly the coach's coach. And one thing that I admire the most about him is his curiosity and ongoing desire for learning. He is constantly reading new research. He's constantly incorporating it into uh, thematic reviews of the literature. He shares freely of his knowledge and writing on his blog. And he's written uh, quite a number of books on all different aspects of endurance training. This is the second time that I've formally interviewed Joe for a podcast, and um, I really like doing these follow-up interviews with coaches and athletes who I've interviewed in the, in the past because it really helps to see how they've progressed, what kinds of things they're pursuing and thinking now, what direction their career and curiosity has taken them. Um, and this interview was was absolutely not disappointing in any way. Um, I love talking to Joe, and I hope that you enjoy this interview as well. This is Suzanne. Thanks for joining us today. Um, today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Joe Friel. Uh, Joe, if you don't already know, is the author of the Training Bible series, Triathlon, Cycling, and Mountain Biking. He also uh, published a book recently called Fast After 50. He's got several other books that he's authored, um, and currently he's working on a new book. I believe it's called Ride Inside that should be published, uh, I think, in May. How are you doing, Joe? I'm uh, doing very well, Suzanne. Thanks. Good. Uh, did I get the title of your newest book correct? It is. That's, that's the title, but it's probably going to be after May, I'm afraid. Unfortunately, it's going to be sometime later summer. Okay. Well, I'm sure it'll still be really valuable for everyone. Um, I wanted to follow up on a conversation that you and I had uh, several years ago. We sat down at Kona, and at that time, you were just about to publish Fast After 50. Um, how has that book been since it's been published? Has it received... Um, uh, the kind of reviews that you thought it would? Has it been as helpful for people as you'd hoped? Uh, seems to have done very well. I get uh, I've, I get lots of emails about that book, mm -hmm. uh, lots of questions, people asking about things, you know, that they're, they've read and, and don't quite understand. And so I've, I've, it's, that's been going on for a few years now and just doesn't seem to let up. It's, uh, <laughs> the book has done very well. Yeah. Is there any one topic in that book that seems to um, strike people uh, the most? Well, I think it comes down to the to bottom line of the book, which I introduce early in the book, and then I spend the rest of, of the uh, chapters talking about, which is basically three things. Mm -hmm. You know, what's, what happens to VO2 max as we get older and why, and what can we do about it? What happens to, to muscle mass? We've, we're used to seeing people as they get older becoming less muscular, mm -hmm. and that has an impact on performance. And finally... Uh, gains in, in body fat as we get older also. And so those three topics seem to be the top topics that are brought up repeatedly by athletes. Yeah, I can relate to a lot of those. Um, I was, uh, I think, two or three years from my 50th birthday when we did our last interview. So now that I've turned 50, I can uh, identify with, uh, with the number at least. Although yeah. I, I have to admit that the day that I turned 50 
was not nearly as traumatic as I expected it to be. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of a relief because uh, that whole year of 49 leading up to it, um, I did have a lot of anxiety about uh, life changing and thinking I wouldn't be able to be as active, but a lot of those thoughts were really unfounded. Sure, I uh, agree. Yeah. So the, uh, another thing that we talked about um, back then was your, um, the, the amount that you research and study. Um, are you still reading every day and learning new things for yourself? I try to. It seems like my life somehow has gotten more busy uh, <laughs> since I've come back on coaching. Yeah. Everything else seems to have taken its place, but I always have a stack of abstracts. I'm looking at it right now on the side of my desk, uh, waiting for me to read them. Mm -hmm. And what I've been doing since the 1980s is every day when I come to my office, the first thing I do is I pick up one abstract off the top of the pile and read it uh -huh. to see if there's anything there that uh, seems interesting to me that I should follow up on by trying to find the find the entire uh, uh, paper. Yeah. And so it keeps, it keeps me busy trying to just keep up with what's going on in the world. Yeah. Do you uh, find that over the years there's been um, a, a increase in the amount of information that's available? Like, is it hard to yes. keep up at the same rate? Yeah, it's hard to keep up. Uh, for example, we talked about the over 50 thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, wrote, I wrote my first book on that topic back in about 1997. And at that time, there was hardly any research at all on aging athletes. Um, so basically, I wrote a book of my opinions. Yeah. And then I, as I, as you mentioned, I wrote, I followed up and wrote this other book, which is like about what, about 15, 16 years later, I write the next book on this subject. Mm -hmm. Went back and started reading research on the topic, and it, I was overwhelmed with research. <laughs> in that 15-year period, it went from almost nothing to it took me it took me six months to get through all the all the literature that I was finding on the on the topic. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's because um, the baby boomers were just reaching into their at that point into their uh, mid 60s. And they were beginning to change things rather dramatically uh, in terms of athletics for aging athletes. Mm -hmm. So more research was being done starting about the time I wrote my book in, back in the 90s. Yeah. So the research has been piling up ever since then. Yeah. Do you think that your book that you wrote back then had any influence on people who are going into exercise physiology and maybe it sparked some ideas? You mean the book I wrote back in the 90s? Yeah. Um, you know, it was both, again, just basically my opinions on the topic. And uh, I didn't really try to turn it into a book where I uh, brought up deep questions that need to be answered. Mm -hmm. I just talked about how I was experiencing the, the world of being 50-ish. Yeah. And um, so I, I don't think it had any impact at all on, <laughs> the, on the, the, the research in the field, but, but having baby boomers aging up had a gigantic impact. Yeah. Well, we talked before about um, some ideas that I think you, you wrote about in Fast After 50 or were planning to include in an update in the, tra in the training Bible series. And that was how um, things that coaches have been doing for a while, like um, period or polarized training, for example, um, yeah. had finally been researched. And so now there was uh, real data that supported the anecdotal evidence that coaches were already pursuing. Right. Are you finding that there's anything... Um, new and novel since then in the last five years that, that should continue to be looked into, coaches who are really cutting edge and trying new things? Well, that's that's one of the big ones. It's, it's, athletes are still uh, adapting. It's, it's really hard to get athletes to accept 
changing the ways they've done it if they've been doing it for several years. Mm-hmm. And, and and the topic you bring up, polarization, is is certainly one of those topics that that uh, athletes typically see as every workout needs to be as hard as you can possibly make it that day. Mm-hmm. And this idea of going easy 80% of the time is really counterprodu- counterproductive from their point of view right. to what their goal is. So that, that's been an ongoing challenge is to get that idea across. Uh, but, but really, really other than that, I, I would say it's what, what I've been seeing the last few years has been kind of a continuation of some of the same stuff we saw before, although it's become much more detailed. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, HRV. Oh, yeah, that's a good example. Um, that's that's come up just in the last, I don't know how many years, but probably the last seven or eight years, something like yeah. that. It started to become readily kind of uh, moved to the top of the pile. It's one topic that almost all athletes are now aware of and, and many are paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And that was something, you know, when, when I wrote my first book, nobody even thought of the idea. Mm-hmm. It had, had never come up when I wrote that book back in the 90s. And now it's become a rather significant um topic in, in the field of, uh, of athletics, especially in terms of recovery. And then, then there's all the stuff that's going on with just the measurement of yeah. all the factors in our lives <laughs> that we now have available that we certainly had no idea would even come around. We, we, it was beyond the scope of our imaginations back in the 90s. I think in terms of, you know, being able to measure what happens to a person dur- during the day and yeah. During the, during the sleep at night, you know what? How much sleep are they getting? How much is deep sleep? How much is REM sleep? And and so, how much time are they awake? And all these details of things that we're now collecting, right? Which which are really kind of going to be the basis for a lot of things going forward. I think in terms of being able to apply not only what you're doing in training to the outcomes in terms of performance, but also what's going on with one's lifestyle. Mm-hmm. in terms of performance. That's that's the direction I think we're moving very strongly right now. I, and we'll see a lot more on that. There, there are many things out there right now that are toying with the idea, but nobody's really taken to the next level yet mm-hmm. in terms of how do we actually apply this to our, to our training. So it, there's a lot to be learned yet about this whole topic of lifestyle. Uh-huh. What, can you give me an example of what you perceive as the next level in, in incorporating this lifestyle information? Yeah, for, to give an example, one of the things that um, I've been, we've been doing with our with training peaks is uh, following training stress scores for athletes. We've been doing that since oh the mid two thousands, so we've been probably fifteen years now, twelve fifteen years, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it started out just being kind of interesting, and now it's gotten to the point that many athletes have learned to pay attention to that very carefully in terms of their training, as opposed to simply just looking at how many miles they put in or how many hours they're putting in sure and looking at their training stress scores and that but that only relates to what's going on with with training training now meaning exercise yeah and uh, that is obviously going to be is impacted by one's lifestyle also mm-hmm. but we don't have a way right now of tying all these tying these pieces together they're just two loose ends We've right got this realm of life which is our exercise training and we've got this realm of life, which is anything outside of exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, our job, our family, our distress in our lives, like psychological, phys- physical stress, and all the stuff that goes on. And we've not married those two together. And that'll be one of the next things I think that we'll see happen is those will be combined. And, and an athlete will be able to look at 
what their daily stress score is mm-hmm. from that know how they're doing in terms of what they should be how they should be training yeah should i am i capable of training more or should i train less right now because of all the stuff i've got going on mm-hmm. and we know these things happen when you have a rough time in your life um a very psychologically stressful period of time for whatever reason it has an impact on how you train and, and people learn that eventually that things show up like the heart rates are high and they don't have nearly as much endurance and they fatigue earlier and they don't have the power all these things show up not because of exercise but because of um lifestyle stress psychological mm-hmm. stress primarily yeah and so we know these things happen we have but we don't have a way of of measuring and, and uh drawing it you know conclusions based on these things yet right um i know that the, some of the um watches like uh i think garmin and uh, whoop both have some some type of feedback about how much recovery you need. Uh, do you think those things are, are still not as sophisticated as they need to be to be helpful? No, they're not. Because they, they I've, I've got, I've got one on each wrist right now. I've got a loop <laughs> on my right wrist and a on my left wrist. Uh-huh. So I'm watching this stuff all the time to see what's going on. Yeah. And then I compare it with my, with my training and you, you can definitely see trends over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the loop measures um, HRV and, I can take a look every day and see what my HRV is today and what today and what's been like in, in the previous days. Yeah. And uh, I can kind of c- compare that with how I, my training has been, what I know about my training over that period of time, mm-hmm. see if there's any relationship between them. But that's kind of where we are right now is it's really not giving us any direction or, or guidance. Mm-hmm. It's simply just numbers we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And we really don't know how to, how to apply these how to numbers. Apply it. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, interesting. Which, which was, with training stress score, TSS, over the years, we've learned how to apply it. We know now, I can tell the athlete what their training workout should be, what their training load should be for today's workout based on what I see their, their TSS as having been in the preceding days. Mm-hmm. And so I can draw conclusions from that and give direction to an athlete. But I'm not able to do that right now from looking at the entire picture of what's going on. There's just too many pieces yeah. That aren't married together in any, any way that's really meaningful for me. Right. Uh, do you think a lot of that has to do with um, with combining the art of coaching with the data? I mean, a lot of what you're describing are things that uh, athletes and coaches have um, up until now intuitively followed or given some kind of a, a grade category. You know, how is your sleep on a scale of one to five? So it's more right. qualitative than quantitative. Um, but we have been able to use those types of measures for the last um, you know, millennium. I mean, heart rate and sleep, hours of sleep and things like that have been things that um, coaches have paid attention to. Yes, that's true. And and that's that's where we are right now is we're, we're still dealing with these topics, these things mm-hmm. in, a, in an artistic way from the, from the, in terms of the art and science and training, uh, as opposed to the science perspective, um, which is not bad. Both things are necessary. Yeah. But if, it, but if again, if I go back to TSS, that started out the very same way. It was people looking, coaches and athletes looking at TSS numbers and trying to use that and from an art perspective. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. What, do, what do I think I should do? Yeah. Now we've gotten to the point that I can I can tell you what to do. You know, you got, <laughs> all I've got to know is what's going on with your numbers. Yeah. And I can tell you what to do. I mean, it's it's become a, it's become rather scientific. Yeah. There's data we can look at, and we can draw conclusions from that data, which is supported by 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 historical um, 
uh, data from other athletes over time. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet with the other stuff. It's we're still in this, the phase of art, and that, but that's always the way it goes. Yeah. If you go, you can trace coaching and and, and training back. You know, you want to go back a decade or multiple decades or even a century, and you can look at and see it started out as just strictly being art. It's yes. how people thought. Right. And as you follow, it eventually becomes more and more scientific over time until now we've gotten to the point where we're very data-oriented, and but we're not there yet with this whole idea of lifestyle stress. Mm-hmm. We're still kind of at this art stage of, of looking at the data. Yeah. What would you say to people that have um, that may struggle with data? Uh, certainly, there are a lot of different personalities, and some people get stressed by having a, a watch on their wrist all the time that's measuring everything. I understand. Yeah, there are many, many people who just don't like numbers at all, uh, and and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But they've got to have something they can do. If they're not going to pay any attention to numbers at all, and they've got to be able to be very, very good at paying attention to how they feel and how yeah. things are going. They've got to be able to use the art side of coaching 100% mm-hmm. and be extremely good at it. There's nothing wrong with the art side of coaching. I support it 100%. But I don't think that rules out the science side of coaching or training either. Sure. Both things are important. Both things are, are necessary to some extent. It's just that some people don't like one or the other. And so they like to rely on only one of these two. But I think that's, I think that's short-sighted, mm-hmm. being, able to, uh, being able to depend on on multiple uh, factors and, and just making decisions about training, I think is actually quite beneficial. Yeah. It, it reminds me a little bit of um, any sort of behavior change. For example, if someone wants to um, lose weight or, or eat better or become a, uh, a more, more consistent in their athletic training, you know, pick one thing and try and make one simple change and see if you can make that a habit. Um, for coaches or athletes that might uh, be afraid of the, the numbers or not like them as much, you know, maybe pick one thing that they could track and follow and see how that impacts their training and um, how they perceive everything. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, that's a good way of doing it. Uh, I, I have athletes contact me all the time. Well, I should say what you said, athletes contact me all the time when I was coaching, mm-hmm. asking me to coach them. And one of the things I would often try to get at is how do they see this Art versus science of training, an aspect of their of their own uh, of their own training. Yeah, and athletes who were strictly opposed to uh, the data, to the science side, and strictly want to go on the basis of how they feel. Um, you know, I had to have a conversation so they would understand what's going on. That you know, as a, their coach, I could not be inside their head or inside their body mm-hmm. and know how it felt. That's, that's what they're going on. It's how they feel. Right. But I, as, as a coach, I can't I have no way of getting that information from them. I can ask them on a scale of zero to 10, how hard was it? And they can tell me the number, but that's an average number. I, I really don't know what it means. You know, yeah. you know what was it? It's a six. So what? You know, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, that's. In terms, yeah. So, I, so I, I have to make sure they understand that as their coach, I've got to have data. I can't get inside their body to, to, to feel it. I've got to understand it from a data perspective. And what I found is with those athletes, they began to, over time, learn what the data was telling them, and, and they became more accepting of it. There was just mm-hmm. this reaction initially to have to deal with numbers. Right, a, a little bit of rebellion maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's especially challenging when you're coaching from a distance if it's not someone that you see every day like you might on a <clears throat> on a high school team or um, a exactly sport that you right. coach face to face. Sure. All that's all all good information. 
Um, how about nutrition? Uh, one of the things that we talked about before is um, some of the different avenues with the types of nutrition that athletes can follow. And specifically, you had talked about um, like a, a carb-heavy paleo diet versus a, a fat-only diet or a blend of the two. Um, what kind of changes have you seen with that and what are athletes um, trending towards and what are you supporting? What I'm um, finding more and more and what I also have learned to support is athletes who are doing very long steady state events like an Ironman distance race mm-hmm. are, are really probably better off having a high fat diet. Mm-hmm. I think that's very beneficial to that type of event. Um, I've seen so many athletes who are who eat high carb that have a very hard time getting enough carbohydrate in during the race. The yeah. body demands carbohydrates. That's basically what the body's become used to using for fuel. And it's very difficult during a 10, 12, 15 hour event to, uh, to get in um, enough carbohydrate without having upset stomachs and all, all the things that we've seen go happen with athletes in that condition. So yeah. I think it's quite beneficial if the athlete becomes long term, becomes adapted to using or to eating a high carbohydrate diet that becomes, I mean, a high fat diet, and that becomes their, their chronic diet. Mm-hmm. I think it's much easier then for them to, uh, to race uh, in long distance events. Yeah. On the other hand, um, if athletes are doing shorter events, uh, you know, events that take an hour, hour and a half or less, um, I've got no problem with them eating a high carbohydrate. But there's all, but there, but both of these have downsides. There's nothing is perfect. Yeah. And and they both have downsides. Not everybody's cut out to uh, eat one way or the other. There's a lot of things about our our how we've. Um, our, our genetics, how we came to be at this point in, in time mm-hmm. with, our, with our genetics, and that has a lot to do with how we should be eating. So it takes some, some experimentation, I think, to figure these things out. But there's some we can we can we can almost know immediately what the answer should be. Mm-hmm. We know that people who come from, um, for example, American uh, Native Indian, Americans Indians. Uh huh. Um, are really better off not eating a high-carbohydrate diet. Uh-huh. We know that causes nothing but problems for them, basically because they've not developed long enough eating that type of diet. They've only been eating that type of diet for a little over 100 years, Yeah. whereas people from Europe have been eating that diet for a couple thousand years. Mm-hmm. So consequently, there's a lot of difference in how our bodies have reacted to it, and consequently what we see in a lot of people uh, in the... Uh, uh, a group of American, um, Native Americans, is a lot of type two diabetes. Yes, yeah. rampant among Native Americans. So, it, so there's a lot of other variables that are thrown into this whole thing that really help have a lot to do with how we make decisions. Also, I'm just giving one one gross example of that. Yeah, but that has that's the same. All of us experience this to some extent. Mm-hmm. We are at this point in time as individuals, based on all the genetics and all this, all the uh, the people who have come before us, all the civilization, all the, uh, the many uh, uh, groups of people who have been our, our ancestors and where they've come from and how they've eaten over time. So this whole thing is a very, very complex topic. Yeah. But you just can't give one answer and say this fits everybody. Of course. We're all unique in some extent. Yeah. You know, I think that some people are able to do an experiment of one very easily and say, okay, for this next uh, four weeks, I'm going to eat a high-fat paleo diet and just make the switch and do it and see how it impacts their body. Um, right. 
some other people uh, might want to do that or might want to experiment, but they, due to um, their internal hormonal um, issues, drives for hunger, the way they metabolize things or the this, this symptoms they may get from withdrawal of carbohydrates, they may have a much, much harder time making a switch like that and are just constantly um, you know, stuck in the same pattern that they've always been following and they may, may be struggling with it or not having success. I agree. Yeah, there, there's there's certainly always that option. If you want to try something, if you want to you believe you may be able to get better, whatever it may be, diet just being one of these topics. Yeah. Is to experiment and find out how it works for you. The only way the only way to find that out is to, is to try it. To try it for yeah. some period of time. It doesn't happen overnight, though. It's, it's as you suggested, perhaps four weeks, perhaps even six weeks for somebody mm-hmm. to find out if eating like that or any other way is uh, beneficial for their performance or not. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen any of the um, the advertisements for genetic tests that give some Im- impact or some insight on how people metabolize foods and their athleticism? I've not gone, run into or tried any of those. I've, I've done the things that have to do with, you know, the checking your ancestry and, and yeah. using uh, mouth swabs and that sort of thing to see what your ancestry is all about. Yeah, but I'm not being able to really tie that directly to uh, nutrition, so I'm, I'm not aware of anything like okay. that. Okay, I, I was hoping I could get a, a jump start from you on that if you'd already researched it. Um, there, there's <laughs> no, at I'm least not. yeah, there's at least one company. I can't think of the name right now. I'll try to add it to the show notes if I can find it again. But it, it's a similar. You do a mouth swab or a spit test and send it in, and there's supposedly you know a list of 20 to 30 factors relating to your genetics that have to do with um, eating and exercise. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. interesting. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what the validity of those is, and that's something that I'm I'm curious about looking into right now. Yeah, that would be the thing. I'm I'm, I'm always concerned about that. What are you know how factual is this data I'm getting, yeah. and what what science is it based on? And sometimes I'm afraid we really don't know those things at all, and we're just kind of accepting things at face value from because the advertising is really good. Right. Yeah, it's it's good advertising, and it's um there are topics that we want to believe in. Right. Um, so how how do you go about um, picking these abstracts? You mentioned that you have a stack to go through. Do you do you go through the table of contents of certain journals, or do people send you things, or do you have someone that helps you choose stuff? Oh gosh, it comes from lots of different uh, sources. One one very good source anymore is just being online. And, mm-hmm. uh, people will occasionally mention studies that they've read. I, you know, this probably happens a couple times a week. Mm-hmm. And so I'll find that study, and I'll just print out the abstract, and it goes on my pile. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, or people send me an email and say, you know, have you seen this? And they'll send me a, you know, a link to a, a paper. Or uh, gosh, there's just so many ways it comes to me anymore. Yeah. It used to be in the old days. I started doing this back in the '80s. Yeah. There's nothing online at all. Obviously, there's no online mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. So I had to go. I had to go to the library and, and pull out the the journals and. Right. Which, and just start thumbing through them was a tremendously time-consuming process. Right, which also probably meant you were one of the few people actually putting that much energy into it. Yeah, I've never found anybody else doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it was too tedious to do. Yeah. But, but I, I was lucky because I used to have a, um, a running store, which became a triathlon store back in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And we were right next to the university, Colorado State University, which was just across the street. Yeah. So, so I could drop in there easily on a lunch break or something and and uh, pull up 
you know, pull a journal off the shelf and just glance through and see what's going on. Yeah. So that's how I got started doing this, but it was, it was extremely time consuming in those days. Sure. Um, are you still managing your, your information on three by five cards? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, my, my wife is, <laughs> okay. Well, I, I envy that in a way. You talk about a physical stack of papers, and I think that uh, I and, you know, maybe a lot of other people who have um, shifted a lot of uh, education to online versions, um, I tend to get lost in um, in the online world. I get online to look for something specific, and it's so easy to get distracted by a, a newspaper article or a headline. Um, so, the, you know, if physical sheets of paper with abstracts on them, to me, sounds really um, attractive. And uh, I, I'm just curious, how do you physically organize this? I mean, after uh, 40 years of doing this, do you have filing cabinets full of papers that you manage, or do you get these moving all the way through so you leave room on the front end again for new, new abstracts? Well, I've got boxes um, that hold these three-by-five cards, and they're, and they're categorized by various topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I obviously started doing that business back since it was in the 80s. There was no other option, no other option head right yeah. down. And three-by-five cards were just easy to deal with. And so I started writing those down, and then once, once you know, the internet started allowing me to do these things much more quickly, I continued to do it because I now had this, I had years, I had 20 years of cards built up, and yeah. changing to a different system was going to be diff- difficult. But my wife, um, who's just always very concerned about things like that, always you know, was asking the question, well, what if we have a fire at the house and <laughs> you lose all those boxes and all those cars and afford, you know, that would 20, be 30 years tragic. of cars. Yeah. So many years ago, she started typing these into a, in, in, into a, an Excel spreadsheet for me mm-hmm. so I can search them and find them very quickly again. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've got them now backed up online, so I've got them both ways. That's great. So she kind of keeps me current with, the, with what's going on in the... Uh, world of technology. Uh-huh. Um, can we talk a little bit about your upcoming book? Maybe you can um, give a little preview and some insight into what people can be doing during this um, home home isolation period. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid my timing isn't very good for the home isolation period. <laughs> if only we could have uh, predicted this, huh? <laughs> yeah, last summer, I don't know why this topic came up. I just, For some reason, I began to think about my by turning indoors, I was, you know, contemplating the winter coming on. And uh, so getting my my trainer set up, I've got a my I've got a gym in my house and uh, silo. Mm-hmm. I've got a trainer and a whole setup of indoor stuff there. And uh, so I was thinking about that, and it dawned on me that, you know, I, I was thinking, what do you know, what, is there anything else I need right now to kind of be, to keep up with what's going on in the world of indoor cycling? And it dawned on me, I hadn't seen anything, I'd never seen a book on the topic of, of mm-hmm. uh, indoor cycling. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, geez, this is interesting. I, there's nobody ever written anything at all on training indoors. Yeah. So I did some research and found there really wasn't anything at all. So I decided to, to write a book on the, on the topic mm-hmm. and started on it. And it was at first kind of a slow project because you know the book is not, for an indoor book, it's probably not going to come out and, you know, for until the fall. And so that was already fall yeah 
it's not going to come out immediately. So I'm looking at a year for this book to be ready to be used, which would be the fall of 2020. Mm-hmm. Little did I know it's going to wind up everybody riding inside <laughs> starting in February and March. Yeah. You know, uh, so the book is still in, in the process of being written. It's not, it's I not see. done yet, but almost done. We're down to like the last chapter. Oh. And then it has to go through the, the editing process, and, sure. which is a very long, tedious thing. And then they finally go into the uh, publishing so mm-hmm. it's going to be it's going to be late summer at best when they have it out. Sure. Well, and, uh, so go ahead. I, I think that we're going to need to to learn how to manage um, training indoors um, a, a lot more. We may not be you know quote unquote locked into our houses indefinitely, but I, I have a feeling that this current infection is going to be around for uh, a good you know eighteen months to three years before it's it, we really get a handle on it. So the more we learn, even if it comes out in the fall, I think it's still going to be real uh, applicable for um, for the coronavirus issue. But it's also certainly going to be helpful for everyone who lives in cold climates or anyone that wants to avoid uh, riding in traffic for any reason. Or, by the way, lives in hot climates. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true. That's true. When you live in the Phoenix area, um, you know, you're looking at the average temperature is like 108 degrees Fahrenheit in the summertime for like three months. Oh, wow. That's the average temperature, average high temperature. Yeah. And so going outside is, even if you go outside at, sun, at the time the sun comes up, you're still looking at 90 degrees. And so consequently... Mm-hmm. The weather has a big impact on how long the days are, where you live in terms of traffic, all of these factors. Yeah. So there are people who, who are some people just are riding indoors basically year round because of all these factors in their lives. Yeah. So consequently, we're trying to put together a bike that our book rather that fits all our needs mm-hmm. and explains how to go about, you know, selecting equipment and, and all this stuff, online data or uh, sites and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. That's another really exciting area of technology, too, because of uh, the ability to merge um, actual video with the trainer that you're riding on and can control yeah. the aspects of the trainer from your smartphone. You know, those are some really yes. interesting and, uh, and fun ways of training that weren't around 10, 15 years ago. You know, this all started with a company called Coffee Trainer mm-hmm. back in, oh gosh, the very early 1980s. It could have been about 1980, 81 someplace in that range is when they started. Yeah. And and basically, and I could be off by a few years, I've forgotten exactly the details of when they opened their doors, but they, they came up with a, a, a uh, software program you could run on your computer uh, and while you're riding your bike. And um, it was pretty cool. That was, yeah. that was the first thing that ever came out like this. And so <laughs> I can recall riding that thing all, you know, doing three-hour workouts, four-hour workouts on copy trainers. Yeah. And uh, now I'm reading online about people doing the same sorts of things, you know, four-hour rides uh, on Swift mm-hmm. uh, or whatever the, the app is they're using. Yeah. So it's the same idea. It's just become a lot more uh, user-friendly now in terms of what it looks like when you're riding your bike. Yeah. I um, I bought a CompuTrainer several years ago and um, did it, I, I had it set up. I did some of my own training and I used it to do some testing for athletes as well. Um, and I think that you wrote several companion training guides for the CompuTrainer. Yeah. Um, but it, it got to the point where I struggled with um, with the computer interface. Um, you know, I had yeah. to run. Uh, I bought uh, a Mac. I transitioned my whole work life to a Mac, and so I had to um, run a, a Parallels program or something to get the the DOS based or the you know Windows based <laughs> software, and it just became too tedious for me. 
Yeah, I recall those days also. I did exactly <laughs> the same thing. I switched over from uh, DOS to, to Mac, and uh, that made life a little bit difficult for a while. Yeah. But but that was that was that was really way ahead of its time in terms of what they were doing oh, back sure. then with that that whole idea. And now we see what's going on. It's like we never could have imagined this happening. People could be doing online races, yeah, uh, online workouts, and it'll, it'll continue to change. I, I expect we'll see someday. We'll see uh, uh, the Tour de France. You'll be able to watch it <laughs> on your on your uh, computer. And put yourself in the peloton. Oh, that you know? would be so much fun! <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be able to ride with the riders. You're watching. You'll watch the race, and you're a part and of ride it. with them. That's great. That's a fantastic nobody idea. Nobody else, will, nobody else will see you, of course, except right. yourself. Right. But well, you're I, in the race. I hope I can slow them down a little so I can keep up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I can see things like and and, and oh, there's all these things that could happen in the future that are still you know way off, way way off like that. But yeah. Uh, it's just very, very interesting what's going on. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, so you're still in the uh, in the final parts of writing your next book. Are you able to look ahead to you know the next thing, or are there any other topics that are on your yeah. on your radar that we haven't mentioned? Yes, this is, I've always kind of got that going in the back of my head, and uh, so I'm actually starting. I've already got the notes on on my next book. <laughs> uh huh. Can you share, or is it too early? Oh yeah, that's no problem at all. It's uh, it's a book for coaches. Fantastic. Uh, I've actually I've been thinking about that for oh, a long time, a couple of decades probably. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, a couple of decades ago, there weren't enough coaches to even even consider the topic of writing a book for them. Yep. Now there are enough out there that I think it's we've gotten to the point where there's we're at a tipping point now where there are enough coaches around the world that um, a book for them would be well received. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm talking with another uh, co-author, uh, PhD, um, teaches coaching, basically, mm-hmm. master's levels uh, uh, coaching at a university. I'm not going to go into all the details on him. I'm not sure if I'm free to Sure, yeah. No, no problem. We'll let people wonder. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he's, you know, he's, He's got. He coaches himself. So he's got both. Uh, he has lots of. He's published lots of papers on the topic of coaching athletes, and, um, and is involved in doing it himself. And so, and so, I've got quite a bit of of, of, of experience myself. And so, kind of marrying our two backgrounds together, yeah, I think would produce kind of an interesting book. So we're in the very, very early stages of this. Mm-hmm. We've both got. We've got a you know table of contents put together. And we've written a few things. Each of us has along the lines of what our topics, our, our individual topics, would be. Yeah. And, but we're just not to the point yet that we're able, ready to take it to um, to a publisher. Sure. Yeah. Well, you've you've got a lot going on. It sounds like. Yeah, there is. <laughs> um, well, I want to wrap things up, and uh, I've, I just have one or two more questions, and you can take you know a minute to answer these or, or ten minutes. It's up to you. Um, but uh, two questions for you. Um, the first one is, uh, I always like to try and extract uh, a favorite workout or a favorite recipe or something along those lines. Is there anything that you can share with us? Um, maybe a current favorite, um, workout, lifestyle tip, um, favorite meal? Well, my favorite, um, workouts, I, I do two hard workouts a week. This tracks us back to what we started, which is a polarization concept, yeah. the 80, 80, 20 thing. 20% of your workouts should be hard meaning roughly around 
anaerobic threshold or higher. Mm-hmm. And 80% should be easy, meaning roughly around aerobic threshold or lower. And so my, my two workouts that I, I really enjoy doing are, you know, to make up that, that 20% is uh, once a week I do uh, uh, long um, intervals that just below my anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold or FTP or whatever you want to refer to it as. Mm-hmm. That, you know, like a seven on a 10 scale. Sure. And so once a week I do these, I've got various courses I do them on, uh, different types, you know, on long climbs, for example. Uh, and are, are these long... indoor courses? No, these are outdoor. You can do okay. them indoors, though. It's the same thing. I was just curious since we had talked about the indoors. So you've got some favorite routes at home that you do these workouts on. Yeah. I've got like three routes that I use that I, I do them on. So that's like my... Tuesday workout uh, frequently mm-hmm. is to do that. And uh, so I get in roughly about oh, somewhere between 25 and 35 minutes of relatively high intensity around, you know, around FTP mm-hmm. uh, on that workout every week, depending on weather, uh, motivation, yep. uh, fatigue, all these things that go into making decisions. So that's my Tuesday workout, and then Friday is I do the high end of that, which I did just this morning, which is to do a, uh, a shorter course, very short. Mm-hmm. It takes 30 seconds to three minutes to, to do, like on a 30-second hill or, or a three-minute hill, mm-hmm. relatively steep, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10% grades uh, at about 120% of FTP, so a relatively high intensity, so about a 9 on a 10 scale mm-hmm. uh, with short recoveries. And so that's my Friday workout, and then everything else is easy. I just go out for these easy rides with my wife and smell <laughs> the flowers and take a look at what's <laughs> going on in the world. Oh, that's great. Um, are you training for something specific or just training to keep in shape or just riding because you love to ride? Uh, I'm just training for life right now, as I usually yeah. say to people. <laughs> I, I never know what's going to happen in the future, but... But I've, uh, you know, trying to maintain some level of, uh, of fitness because occasionally I get caught up in, in doing something. Somebody invite me to do a group ride. They always become races. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so I just, just want to be prepared to be able to, to race on the spur of the moment in yep. a situation like that. Uh, and, and also because I know it's beneficial to uh, uh, lifestyle. Yep. Uh, not only the quality of life, but also the quantity of life. And so I, I try to stay as active as I can by doing things like that. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's really important. Um, you know, as a physician, when I um, see patients that have either uh, a new unexpected diagnosis, like um, a sudden diagnosis of cancer, um, or there are patients who have been active their, their whole lives, but they have underlying heart disease, um, mm. the people who are in better um, aerobic and cardiovascular shape at the time of those diagnoses do much better than people who are not. So uh, even if you don't anticipate any of those things happening, their life can always throw you a turn. That's for sure. I agree 100%. It, it's, uh, it's training for life is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I see so many folks that uh, have just not stayed active enough as they get into their 60s, 70s, 80s. they just not stayed active enough. And then I run into people who are in their 90s or even early 100s. I know of guys who's <laughs> 101 years old. Wow. And he's in great shape. You know, he's, he's 
she just this is in great shape for somebody 101 years old. Yeah, that's uh, great. And it's just something because he's stayed active his entire life. He's you know, mm -hmm. he's he's not just become a somebody who has to have somebody push him around in a in a wheelchair all day long. He drives mm -hmm. his own car. He does he works <laughs> out. and does all kinds of stuff. That, that's, you know, a lot of 50 year olds wouldn't do. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with Andrew Weil? I uh, can't place the name, no. Um, he, you may recognize the name in a different context, but he's a physician, a Harvard-trained physician that started uh, a program, I think, at the University of Arizona. Um, I may not be correct, but it, it's basically about uh, wellness and lifestyle. Um, huh. But he came to Pittsburgh on a speaking tour, and one of the comments that he made was uh, describing um, compression of aging. So in other words, if you're 101 years old and you're still uh, you know, active and exercising and riding your bike and then you have a heart attack and you die within a month, that's compression of aging. The, the whole right. end of life is, is you know, wrapped up into a few weeks rather than developing yes. chronic conditions years, in years. your 60s. Right. So that's a phrase that sticks with me. Yeah, um, I just read. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, that's okay. Just one last quick question, and only because I'm curious about it. Uh, you had mentioned the last time we talked that in the back of your mind, you thought you might completely rewrite the training Bible from scratch. Do you still consider that? Well, I think we talked back when this, this had to have been Corona. It was 2014. 20, yeah, 14. Yeah. Yeah, and what I did in 2016, I rewrote the cyclist training Bible, the triathlete's training Bible, completely rewrote them. I just threw away the manuscript, started with a blank sheet of paper. Fantastic. And wrote, wrote all new books. So they're, they're out They're now. both new, they're, okay. Yeah, it's entirely new. Well, I saw the, uh, I checked the edition numbers before the, the interview because I wanted to be caught up and the, the cycling is on its fifth edition and the triathlon right. is on its fourth edition. So right. it's all new information in there. I guess I'll have to buy new yeah, copies. Yeah, it's all new. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Um, I don't have any other questions today, but I really appreciate you taking the time out to chat with me. Well, thank you for asking, Suzanne. I enjoyed the conversation. This is always fun to talk about this kind of stuff for me. Yeah, thanks. Maybe we can catch up again on another podcast within the next five years. <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> All right. Anytime. Thanks. Enjoy your afternoon, Joe. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Joe. I really appreciate you listening in. One of the things that I love about doing this podcast and about doing my coach education webinars over at tricoachacademy.com is sharing what I've learned with athletes and coaches and using my knowledge to help interview other experts in the field and ask them questions that may help them uh, reveal information, uh, strategies, knowledge, experiences that as a, a newer triathlete or a newer coach or just someone who may not be in touch with a lot of other coaches and athletes, you may not know how to get a hold of that information. Um, maybe you want to hear about how a particular athlete does something and you can't find an interview with that person uh, or how a particular coach has accomplished work with a certain athlete. If you have thoughts like these, get in touch with me, please. I'm always looking for new people to interview. And there's really no uh, requirement to be a guest on the show other than that you've got some interesting story to share. I feel like it's part of my job as the host to draw out the best from my guests and help them share their story, whatever it is. 
I think that everyone has a story to share that we can all learn from. So that being said, if you've enjoyed this podcast and if you enjoy my other interviews, I would love it if you can help other athletes as well and help other coaches by leaving me a review on iTunes, preferably a positive review. If you can leave me a five-star review, that would be fantastic. If you've enjoyed this interview and the other interviews that you've listened to, I'd really appreciate if you could help me spread the word to other athletes and coaches by leaving me a review on iTunes. Good reviews, so I understand, help other people find the podcast more easily. And the more people that find the podcast and listen to it, the more people I can serve. And that's really my goal is to reach as many coaches and athletes out there as possible about endurance training, triathlon training in particular, but uh, really all human performance in particular endurance. Next week's interview will be with Pete Jacobs. Pete Jacobs is the 2012 Ironman world champion. In 2013, he dropped out of the championship race because of his health. He experienced some health issues that he felt he was unable to recover from fully, and part of that was due to his training for Ironman. In this interview, we talk about his struggles after the 2012 race. We talk about his nutrition, experimentation, and current strategies. We talk about mindset, and we talk about a whole lot of additional things that I think you'll probably want to have a notebook next to you while you listen. I know that I took a full page of notes and um, he actually had to ask me to stop typing so much because I was um, I was distracting him. But there's so much good information. Uh, I just switched to pencil and paper and, um, and filled a page and a half. And hopefully I'll get all those notes transcribed for you as well. Um, so uh, thanks for joining me. Please leave us a good review. Next podcast is with Pete Jacobs. And if you're looking for other ways to support this podcast, I do have a Patreon page at Try to Listen, where you can help support the production, transcription, and editing of these episodes. Feel free to get in touch with me at any time through the website, trytolisten.com. That's T-R-I, the number two, the word listen.com. Thanks a lot. See you soon.